and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee Stud. The Tennessee Stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Please welcome the creator of the popular 605 podcast and the president of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, your co-host, the great Ryan Last. Hello again, friends. And welcome back to another edition of Ron Fuller's Studcast. I'm the great Ryan Last. It's my pleasure to be with you once again as the Tennessee Stud takes us down that road of wrestling history, sharing with us his tales, his anecdotes, his bookings, his stories, and so much more. No more archaeological digs, unfortunately. But without any further ado, before he rides off on lightning, the man of the hour, the host of the Studcast, the legendary Tennessee Stud himself, Ron Fuller. Ron, how's it going today? Hey, it's going great, Brian. Doing fine, man. Uh, happy to be here. Uh, happy to have the opportunity to talk to these wonderful fans and loyal listeners out there. And I think uh, we've got a good program for them today. I think we've got a lot of ground we're going to cover. And, uh, and I'm ready, my man, when you are. Well, the summer of 1975 is getting close to ending, but before we get there, quick mention here at the top of the show, Super Studcast number 21, parts 1 and 2 are available right now. Check them out today if you are a longtime fan of Southeastern Wrestling in Pensacola in Alabama. You're going to want to hear this on part 1, Ed Boulder, or you may know him as Brutus the Barber Beefcake, and on part 2, Roy Lee Welch. This is a great wrestling history lesson both parts well over three hours of great content dealing with so many things and we'll tell you more about them later in the show but tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast to check them out today for only $2.99 you get in the door it's the best deal in wrestling but Ron where are we going to today right here on the studcast well we're going to begin this studcast with a look at August the 22nd 1975 and the southeastern weekend there in which we're going to wrestle in Knoxville on a Friday and Middlesbrough Kentucky on a Saturday. We're going to announce the cards, the results, payoffs and the TV that promotes the weekend just like we normally do. We're going to and now after analyzing the July 1975 Arbitron and Nielsen TV rating books I realized that it was time for me to begin my plan to associate Southeastern wrestling with high schools in Tennessee, Kentucky, and Virginia to hold wrestling events in their gyms in exchange for helping them with funds for whatever they needed. Uh, We're also going to talk about a very difficult time of year for all wrestling companies, the fall of every year, and an especially difficult one for Southeastern because the annual fair arrives in Knoxville and they just happen to be uh, setting up shop in Chilhowee Park 
and uh, that requires that I find another venue for the first three weeks in September. Uh, I'll be leaving the state on August the 25th, 1975, for two shows in Florida, one in on a Monday night in West Palm Beach versus Abdullah the Butcher, and two days later in Miami versus Larry Henning. So we've got a lot to talk about in this one, my man. There's a lot going on there. Before we get going, just one quick question. You mentioned that you're going to have to find a new venue for the first three weeks in September. I know you're going to get there eventually, but just curious, is there a better time to need a new venue than back-to-school time? Oh, geez. I mean, it's just about the worst time you could change your buildings. I mean, changing your building is kind of like changing your television station. It's uh, it's it's difficult. Uh, and the problem here is in, in this city, and we're going to kind of get to it today, uh, is this city just doesn't have a lot of facilities. And it and where the then the options are very bad, you know, so that makes it even more difficult. But uh Let's just start, uh, Brian, on uh, Friday night, August the 22nd, 1975, and take a look at that card and the results in Chilhowee Park. We're still in the park at this point. And uh, last studcast, we talked about the Friday, August 15th, and the first ever match between the Assassin and I in Knoxville. We had not defended our Tennessee Tag Championships in six weeks, and his relationship seemed to be much stronger with Rock Hunter than it was with me. On August the 15th, we had that most unusual single match in Knoxville between the Assassin and myself, in which the winner got to choose his new Tennessee tag partner. I don't know if there's ever been a match like that before or since. But the match that night had a double disqualification of both the Assassin and I, so there was no winner. So, uh, and uh, since that happened, and, uh, and there were still no defending Tennessee tag champions because... The assassin wasn't getting along with me, and he really didn't want to wrestle partners with me anymore. So the, I got the Tennessee Athletic Commission involved uh, and required, and they required a one-night tournament to decide the new Tennessee Tag Champions. There were five great teams in the tournament for Friday, August the 22nd, 1975. That's when this tournament is to decide the new Tennessee Tag Champions. The five teams, the assassin and Rock Hunter, uh, former Tennessee tag champs, Ron and Don Wright, my brother Robert and I, Jimmy Golden and Tommy Siegler, and a new team out of California called the Avengers, uh, who are the Pacific Coast champions, tag champions. The first round of the tournament was going to be drawn from a hat beginning of the night in the amphitheater at Joe Howie Park. This was the entire tournament on that night of August 22nd after the results of the drawing from the hat. The first round... After drawing, Ron and Don Wright were going to wrestle in the first match against the Avengers from California. Then the Assassin and Rock Hunter were going to take on Jimmy Golden and Tommy Siegler, and Robert and I drew a bye out of the hat, which means that we're going to find out who's going to win the match, and we go back and draw again after that point. But at this point, it looks like we're in the second round without having to wrestle. That's a nice beginning to a night like this. The Wrights had a wild first-round match with the California Avengers. Ron Wright introduced both the California Stars to his chisel. And uh, these boys were definitely not scared, and they fought back valiantly and violently. I mean, I was really surprised at these dudes. And, uh, you know, they'd never seen anything like that, I'm sure. And, boy, 
The referee stopped the match around the 30-minute mark, disqualified both teams as the crowd was going crazy, obviously. And I had to try my best to limit Ron Wright and his use of the chisel. But uh, there were not going to be many matches on this card because it's a tournament and there were only five teams in it. So I kind of turned him loose that night. I said, Ron, do what you want. Oh, boy, probably shouldn't have done it. But there was so much blood that I thought I wasn't going to be able to use the video. We were videoing the match. I thought, it's so bloody, I don't think we're going to be able to use any of it. And that's why I named this stud cast, this particular episode, The Chisel Returns. And the photo comes with each episode as a photo of that infamous chisel. So if fans want to get an opportunity to see what that chisel looks like, and uh, if they go to tnstud.com, for instance, to get their their uh, podcast uh or their studcast, they're going to be able to find it there. And I'm sure it'll be in other locations where they find it as well. But uh, if you've never seen it, this is your chance. <laughs> but but be warned, it's not pretty. Uh, I've got the picture of the chisel there. And uh, I think fans will find it uh, fascinating, if not horrifying. So uh, it was such a great match that I decided to return it the following Friday night. These these two teams really had a war and uh, and the crowd just really, really loved it. The other first-round match saw the Assassin and Rock Hunter get a win over Jimmy Golden. And Jimmy's in his, one of his, he's in his actual last Southeastern match for quite a while. And his partner, Tommy Sigler, obviously, he and Jimmy are eliminated from the tournament. But both the Wrights and the Avengers from California disqualified in the first round. There was only the finals remaining after Golden and Sigler had been eliminated. So Robert and I are going to face uh, the Assassin and Rock Hunter in the finals for the Tennessee Tag Championship. This match lasted almost an hour and left all four of us exhausted. It, was, it had a very controversial finish, making the Assassin and Rock Hunter the new champions, but still with such controversy that it left the Tennessee Athletic Commission having to order another three-team tournament with the new Tennessee champions, the Assassin and Rock Hunter, having to defend against the other two teams two weeks later on Friday, September 5th. So uh, the uh, Tennessee Athletic Commission is, is highly involved in this particular week of wrestling there. The gross house for Friday, August 22nd, 1975, was 3,700 fans for an $11,100 gross and a total payoff of 3100 the first match participants, the Wright brothers, and the new Avengers had to work only once, and all and they got $225, along with the referee, same thing. And again, I did not take a payoff. Uh, Jimmy Golden, Tommy Siegler, uh, Robert, who only worked once, uh, and the assassin, and uh, they all got, I paid the, these three guys 300 and I gave the assassin and Rock Hunter $500 each because they had wrestled twice. They were the only guys on the card that had wrestled twice. So who were the Avengers, Ron? Who were, were they just two guys you put on masks? Two and said young they were from guys. California? I'd, I'd never seen them. Uh, I don't remember their, I don't recall their names. They were young. They had that California look. They looked good. They had great bodies. Uh, but you know, as with a lot of guys that come from out of the West, for some reason, they don't have, they're not great workers a lot of times. And these boys tried really, really hard. And I was really amazed when he popped them with the chisel and, and they fought back, man. They, they really, they never, they never quit. Uh, I really got a lot of respect for them. And, and I said, you know, I was looking for another team anyway, so I was going to keep them. 
for at least another week to have another week's look at them. So I just went ahead and, and rebooked that tag match because the crowd had just loved it. And I did have the video, and I was going to be able to use it the following week. The following night, uh, we're in Middlesbrough, Kentucky, and we'd never been there on a Saturday. This time it's on a Saturday night. And uh, this was the card there, Tony Peters versus Rick Connors in a 15-minute draw. Dean Ball lost to Les Thatcher. Sputnik Monroe beat the former Inferno, Rocky Smith. Tommy Siegler and I beat the Assassin and Rock Hunter. Crowd was about 1,200. It was the largest crowd yet in Middlesbrough, and I felt very good about that. The gross was 3,600, and the total payoff was about 1,000, a little over 1,000. Bottom guys, uh, Ball, Peters, Connors, the ref got 65, and the top guys all got 135. I didn't take a payoff again. For the two-day weekend, bottom guys made about $300, and the top guys were very happy with anywhere from 435 to over $600 for their weekend, depending on how many times, obviously, they worked. So uh, it's a pretty darn good weekend, considering you're right at the end of August. School is about to start, and uh, I was pretty happy with it. Uh, so let's take a look at the television on Saturday, August 16th. That is the Saturday before this tournament that we're talking about. And this is how that television was was put together to promote the five-team tournament on August 22nd. Uh, we know who was wrestling on the card. We've already talked about that. But now let's hear how, how we promoted it. Uh, there were five teams in the Tennessee Athletic Commission ordered one-night tournament to find the new Tennessee tag champion champions. For the first time ever in Southeastern Wrestling, there were four tag matches on this one TV show. This is obviously because there's a one-night tag tournament. Tag matches are always exciting, and this was a tag tournament all night. There, there's going to be nothing but tags in the next Friday night. Uh, that's what's going to be is all tags. So I just said, let's put four tag matches for the first time ever on television. So fan, fans that came to the studio and all, obviously those at home were treated that day to something special. Les opened the show at the set with the Tennessee tag belts that were the emphasis of the entire program, obviously. He briefly explained what had happened the night before, where there was no winner in deciding who the new champions would be. He explained the Tennessee Athletic Commission idea of a one-night tournament to decide the new champions and threw it to the ring for the first match. The heel team of Sputnik Monroe and Tony Peters were introduced first because they were already in the ring. Their opponents came into the studio with a tremendous roar. They were the only team in the tournament who had been former Tennessee tag champions, and that was Ron and old Don Wright. The hometown heroes got a loud, uh, a loud uh, shout, uh, shout out over Tony Peters and the great Monroe, and they got a great victory to uh, uh, over Tony Peters. And uh, Sputnik had carried most of that match. Thank goodness I had a guy like Sputnik in that match because he was so good at knowing how to get things done, and he really got it done in this match. So Ron and Don, they took the first interview segment with Ron Wright, sitting there sharpening his chisel at the set with Les Thatcher while his younger brother Donnie stood behind him and did some rare talking. Donnie was actually, I, when they started the interview and Ron sitting there, I didn't, he didn't say anything about filing his chisel, but, you know, uh, I look in uh, from upstairs in the control room and I and I go, is he got his chiseled out there? So I think Les is seeing the same thing I am. So Les kept asking Ron Wright what he was doing, as I guess thousands of fans watching must have been asking themselves out there. So Ron Wright just kept ignoring Thatcher and telling Donnie to just keep talking. 
Uh, when Ron was ready, he placed the chisel on his hand, smiled up at Donnie, who's standing behind him, and he says, I'll take it from here. And then he started. And as I can remember, it went something like this. Uh, he said, uh, Les Thatcher, he goes, uh, you know what this here is, don't you? And Les nodded his head saying, uh, yeah, I know what that is. And I certainly know what it does to a raster. And you have no business out here with something like that. So he started on, but Ron cut him off right away. Ron said, of course you know what it is, because I've split your head with it many times. And this here's my chisel. And come Friday night, I'm going to be using it quite a bit. That's why I'm out here sharpening it up today, getting it ready for next Friday. So Les started to say something, but Ron stopped him again immediately. Wait just a second, Mr. Thatcher. I ain't done. There are how many teams in this here tournament for next Friday, he asked Les. Les says, four other teams and you and your brother, Ron. Uh, that's all I need to know. He stops him again. I don't believe nary a team in this here tournament has ever wore these belts before, like just me and old Donnie here have. Is that right, Mr. Thatcher? Yes, glancing at Les. Les said, yes, but I don't think you should be out here with that in your hand. Les is still focused as I was on that darn uh, chisel on Ron's hand. So Ron glances up at it, uh, you know, and he says, uh, that ain't none of your business, and you can keep your mouth shut the rest of this interview. <laughs> so me and old Donnie here is going to spill, spill lots of blood next Friday night down there at Chihai Park. Not just one team's blood, but maybe four teams' blood. That could be a total of eight people. And then he looked up at Donnie standing behind him as if he wanted to verify that his math was correct. <laughs> and I laughed in the control room. My gosh, here goes Ron. So he continues. And that's why I'm here sharpening my chisel today because I ain't never hit eight people with this here thing in one night. Me and old Donnie here ain't held these Tennessee tag belts in quite a spell, he said, pointing at the tag belts on the desk in front of him. And we're the only bona fide Tennesseans in this tournament, and I've already ordered at least five ambulances to be sitting and waiting for the bloody bodies of our opponents to be carried out to them come next Friday. We ain't a-stopping, Donnie, till it's all over, and them belts right here in, in front of us are around our pretty little waist at the end of it. So, and then he says something like, you know, Mr. Thatcher, what next Friday is? He asked as Les rolled his eyes and said, no, Ron, I don't. And uh, so Ron discontinued. It's National Dog Whooping Day, Ron said. And me and old Donnie here ain't never failed to celebrate it. And this here time, we got the best reason ever. We're going to finally be Tennessee Tag Champions again. Because of me chisel, they're going to be putting more stitches and heads down at the local hospital than the flag factory stitching up Old Glory over there on Kingston Pike. And the studio audience popped and and so did I, be honest with you, in the control room upstairs. I could always depend on Ron Wright to get a TV show off in the right direction, and he certainly didn't disappoint me on this particular Saturday. This was one of the few TVs that we had not done any video from the night before matches. Uh, I thought four tag matches under the circumstances would be plenty on the program. The next tag was the New Hill team from California called the Avengers. I called them the Pacific Coast Tag Champions, and uh, that's what they said they were. I'm not sure they were, but, uh, you know, I didn't care, and I didn't think it would be anybody in Knoxville that would know. So I had just met Roy Shires, the San Francisco promoter, the year before at the NWA meeting. And I did not go to the 75 NWI meeting because it was in August, and I was digging artifacts in my short archaeological career and trying to get my new wrestling company off the ground. Mr. Shires was kind enough 
to think of me when he had a new tag team and no spot for them. I told him to have them call me, and when he did, I said I could use them for only two weeks in case they bombed like my last heel team, Cowboy Parker and Ken Dillinger. This team looked good body-wise, as was the case, as I said earlier, because they were out of the West, but there's a lot more to being a good worker than just having a good body. They were young and gung-ho, and I came up with a good tag team type of finish that they both loved. They didn't even have their own finish. Uh, so, you know, I had to sit with them and come up with a finish for them. They defeated Dennis Condry and Tommy Gilbert from the Memphis side of Tennessee, Tennessee in this tag match. And the match was good, mostly because the two baby faces carried it. I had another tag team set for September called the Interns, managed by Ken Ramey. I knew the reputation of the Interns. I knew this was a good team. I knew they were good. And I had no need for three heel teams. So I pretty well figured that this would this following Friday night would be the end of the, the Avengers run in Knoxville. After their match, I sent both those guys to the set for the second interview of the show. And I knew they were so green that their TV promo they were I was expecting was going to be pretty much worthless. So I hedged my bet with the old veteran himself, Sputnik Monroe, who was in that first match. I had Sputnik go out to the set with him and stand in full view of the studio audience and watch the young guys match. Toward the end of the match, I had him get more excited. Talked about Sputnik about it. He he picked up on it right away about the match, and he moved up to ringside and started barking out instructions like he was trying to be their manager. When they won the match, I had him jump in the ring and raise their hands in victory, and they left in the ring left the ring in a deep conversation between the three of them about something. And Les picked up on it. And, and wondered out loud on the on the, on the microphone it is said uh, if Sputnik was had discovered himself a new team I think that's the way he put it Sputnik may have found himself a new team here so when they came out after the TV station's commercial break they were escorted by Sputnik Les asked Sputnik right away if he was trying to become a manager Sputnik said no Thatcher I'm just trying to help a couple of California boys who may end up in the ring with those crazy hillbillies that were your, your first interview of the day. Of course I can help them. I'm one of the smartest wrestlers that ever lived. What I'm concerned about is these two young guys and what that idiot Ron Wright was flashing around earlier in the show. That so-called chisel that Ron Wright is so proud of. These boys are pretty, he said. Not ugly like me for being hit many times by that weapon Ron Wright's carrying. They are in a one-night tournament with a lot of talented wrestlers, and I think I might be able to teach them a thing or two about winning and maybe even how to carry a little toy or two of their own into the ring. I like helping young wrestlers, he said, like these two, especially if they have a little bit of a nasty attitude. Les turned to the boys and asked, do you know who this man is? <laughs> and he was dead serious. You know, and he nodded in Sputnik's direction when he asked him the question. And one of them said, he's the world famous Sputnik Monroe. And, and, and the other one chimed in, yeah, he and Norvell Austin held these Tennessee tag belts. They were pointing at the belts sitting on the front of the desk when he said it. They were champion for years, the guy said. So, so Les rolled his eyes as Sputnik put his hands on the shoulders of the California team. Les looked at Sputnik saying, with time remaining, running quickly running out in the interview, he says, you never cease to amaze me. And Sputnik turned his head to the side, working the camera that was on him at the moment, and he ran his finger slowly down the profile of his face, as he used to do in Memphis, and he turned to Les and said, you haven't seen anything yet.
and the three of them left the set. And I felt like maybe I I had started to create something special with someone special, and I mean Sputnik Monroe. It wasn't my opportunity to to utilize a guy that my dad had made so much money with over the years and was a, such a spectacular talent. And uh, I was real happy that I got Sputnik involved in this little deal. How do you follow that on the episode, Ron? Well, the next segment's obviously in every program, the personality profile. And this one is pretty ingenious, if I say so myself. Uh, we invited the head of the Tennessee Athletic Commission to come from Nashville to be on this profile. And uh, athletic commissions in Tennessee and almost all across the South were there due to my grandfather Roy's brilliant plan to involve state government in protecting his monopoly over wrestling in the South. He had figured out a way to get the, the governors involved and the people in the state involved, uh, create a little tax money that they could spread around and put in their pockets if they wanted to, and uh, and make sure that he maintained control of his entire 12 states in the South that he was operating in one time. It was a great topic of for discussion in the future, this whole thing with Roy and how he set up athletic commissions. And we're going to get to it once we get into the late 1970s, because that's when I'm going to start trying to take apart some of these commissions that begin to try to actually run the sport uh, instead of just being a body that has no power. They got to thinking that they were powerful enough to tell the wrestlers and the promoters what to do. These athletic commissioners were in figurehead only, but didn't realize just how little control they had over wrestling. I knew the head commissioner would be flattered with this opportunity, and it didn't hurt to make him feel special rather than ignore the organization. It gave the tournament more credibility. And when Les opened up the pre-recorded personality profile, the head of the Tennessee Athletic Commission couldn't have been prouder, man. He looked like a peacock sitting there. Uh, it was a perfect five-minute segment that dealt with a real wrestling subject. It got my new Southeastern Wrestling Company, the only new wrestling company in Tennessee for years, over with the fans and the commissioner at the same time. Les understood what I was, what I was trying to do and did an excellent job of leading the head commissioner into making it appear that the athletic commission had been totally the ones to order this one-night tournament. When the five minutes was over, the head commissioner was extremely complimentary of the wrestling show itself and the company and made comments to that effect as the profile ended. This personality profile had done more by far than any profile yet for the credibility of Southeastern Wrestling and its relationship with the Tennessee Athletic Commission. Talk about wrestling being a work, Brian. We had just worked the Athletic Commission big time. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't think he even realized, you know, we'd made a star out of him, and, uh, and in return, he made a star out of us. So we get to the third match on the show, which was the Assassin and Rock Hunter, third tag together against Tommy Rich and Rick Connors. This was a very good match for the heel team because Tommy Rich was becoming a great baby face, and they used him perfectly. He looked great in the beginning. Obviously, he made a lot of moves. He did. They bumped them both. He did all the things that's necessary to have a great tag and get the fans all into it early. And, uh, and at the end of it, after he tagged in Rick Connors, Rick Connors got in trouble right away. They beat him up big time, and they tag old Tommy, and here comes a big old fiery comeback at the end. 
studio audience, like I said, they were really into it. Sasson and Hunter took the interview segment after the commercial break. And uh, they took it when they were still hot and felt it. I love to put guys on interviews immediately following their matches because their interviews were always better that way, I thought. They carried that spark from the match to the set, and they lit it up that afternoon. I had them say what I would have would have had uh, had I still been a heel. Uh, I had them put the heat on the athletic commission for ordering anything, much less a one-night tournament with such importance. So it's the assassin and rock hunter, and they're one of they they don't like athletic commissions anyway. They're forced to pay a tax to be able to wrestle. And, uh, you know, so they pounded less with appropriate questions that I could have never asked, but I had them ask the questions that I would have liked to have been able to ask the Tennessee Athletic Commissioner. Uh, the assassin asked less. He goes, uh, how many matches has anyone on the Tennessee Athletic Commission ever had? <laughs> so Les defended them, as I, I would have hoped he would have. And, uh, but then he had to finally ad- admit that, you know, uh, well, I don't think anybody on there has any real wrestling experience, you know. So Rock Hunter asked, and he says, uh, well, when when uh, when we have to buy a Tennessee Athletic Commission license to, re- license to wrestle in the state, where does that money go, Les? <laughs> and again, Les did his best to defend the Athletic Commission, but the boys in the dressing room and in the back had to be getting a big laugh out of that question. Uh, they ended up guaranteeing uh, both the assassin and rock hunter a victory in the tournament and also guaranteed to be better representatives of the state of Tennessee as champions than anyone on the Tennessee athletic commission could ever be. The boys in the back loved the interview and I was sitting up top there watching it all in the control room. And I loved it as well. How did the athletic commissioner respond? Well, I actually, he, he hung around to watch the whole show but I never got to speak to him afterward. Uh, I didn't bring him up in the control room. I didn't want anybody in the control room. It was usually just me and the director, maybe the sound guy. Uh, so, And I liked that because I could talk uh, and say anything I wanted to. Uh, I was I was kayfabing this athletic commissioner just like I would anybody else. I didn't want him being an actual part of my show. I was basically using those guys at this point to give some credibility to my one-night tournament and and it worked out pretty darn good. So the last match on the show was the first time that Robert and I had worked as a tag team since May 12, 1975, when we partnered with my father in Memphis against the three Australians. We wrestled against Frank Morrell and Dennis Condry. I had the assassin and rock hunter go out to the set with Les after our match started. They were there for the finish, which neither of them had ever seen. The studio was into the match from beginning to end. The end was spectacular when we did the dangerous finish that Louis Tillette, who was the booker at the time in Florida in 1973, uh, when he invented this move for us and he put us over for the Florida Tag Team Championships in 1973, and uh, we used this same finish to beat those guys. Uh, Robert, and in this finish, uh, it was a most unusual finish. Robert shot... Frank Morrell into the ropes opposite me. I'm standing behind him. He shoots Morrell in the ropes, and then he backdrops him as high as he can in the air. At uh, at Morrell's height, the absolute highest he got in the air, I grab him from behind. He's upside down in midair. His head's pointed toward the mat, 
and I drop with him and me, both of us, and he in a pile driver position, basically, from there, and he lands both of all that weight and all that crushing noise on the back of Morrell's head. No one, including the wrestlers in the building, had ever seen that move, and you could tell instantly it got over when the crowd gasped in unison as, as me and Morrell landed with a loud thud as Frank, the back of Frank Morrell's hit pinned in that position. The ref just dropped down there and counted him out. Uh, he was going nowhere. <laughs> in fact, I think he was half out, to be honest with you. Uh, the ref, and when the ref counted him out, the crowd erupted. The assassin and the rock hunter at the set exploded also. I watched this back when I got home to my home because it was pre-recorded and I got to hear what their comments were when they were out there watching the match. And as soon as that move was done, the assassin screamed at Les, did you see that? He broke his neck. Uh, you need to get that athletic commissioner out here right now. That move has got to be banned before they kill somebody with it. And Rock Hunter says, I'm not going in the ring with any team that uses something like that for a finish. Thatcher, you better get something done now to stop that move. Les said, I'm sorry, gentlemen, and 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 also happy at the same time that I'm not in that tournament next Friday night because <laughs> I've got no control over what, he's, what they can do to you guys. So... I thought that was a nice little segment. Uh, got a big pop. The crowd saw something new. I got those wrestlers that probably wouldn't have sold it to really sell it because it was a phenomenal-looking finish. So Rob and I had returned to the dressing room after the finish, and the assassin and rock hunter, Dennis Condry, and the referee carried Frank Morrell back to the dressing room. He never got on his feet at all after that move. The crowd was still buzzing after the finish, and we had that we had just used when we arrived at the set with Les for the last interview of the show. Les opened up with a question for us right off the bat. Where did you guys learn to do that? And how many wrestlers have you injured with that move? And we explained how it was invented, the small number of times we had used it, and that we had used it only in the pursuit of a championship. And we kept the championship, tag team championship. We reminded every one of the four teams in the upcoming tournament that this was for the Tennessee Tag Championship. We pointed at the belts on the front of the set that had been there all day and reminded fans that Ron Wright was wrong earlier in the show when he talked about he and his brother being the only bona fide Tennesseans in this tournament. We were Rob and I, bona fide Tennesseans at birth, and were destined to be the next tag champions. That we intended to showcase that move today and had no qualms about using it again to win the titles next Friday night. We had planned on beating this guy today on TV with it, and we're going to use it again next Friday night. I had my doubts about how good I could make this TV show earlier in the week, but now, after ending it in this way, I felt really good about what we might see in that beautiful amphitheater the next Friday night. Well, before we go any further, Ron, let me stop you here and let's take a quick break and hear a little bit about the latest Super Studcast, this being Super Studcast number 21, part one, over 90 minutes with Brutus the Barber Beefcake, and part two, over 90 minutes with Roy Lee Welch. 
Super Studcast are always filled with information and history, and in most cases, go well beyond three hours in length. Super Studcast number 21 is a perfect example of a horse race that covers a lot of ground in a short period of time. At tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Three hours never flew by so fast when Brutus the Barber Beefcake and Ron's cousin and former United States Junior Heavyweight Champion Roy Lee Welch tell their unique stories. Every star has a story. Ed Leslie wrestled under many names with many partners, like the man who would become Hulk Hogan, but never discovered himself until he took up the barber's years in the WWF. His story is spellbinding. Roy Lee came from a wrestling family, as did the stud, but his story involves the Atlanta wrestling war from the inside, the beginning of southeastern Pensacola, and the training of wrestlers such as Brutus the Barber Beefcake, Hulk Hogan, and Arn Anderson at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast for only $2.99. There's no better way to learn wrestling history than listening to the 21 fantastic Super Studcast now available there you hear it the latest super studcast super studcast number 21 parts one and two well over three hours with brutus the barber beefcake as well as roy lee welch here's so much about the early years of hulk hogan from two guys one guy who was there when he first broke in and one guy who was his best friend from florida hear how that friendship developed and so much more tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast so ron we've so far been talking about the end of august in knoxville where are we going now well we're going to change directions entirely uh we're going to go back in time to find some ideas from the past for the future of southeastern wrestling uh, let's start with a very valuable lesson i learned when i when given the opportunity to be the local promoter of west palm beach for the florida territory in may of 1971 I learned, obviously, all kinds of valuable promotional tools to operate a large city. But most in, my most important discovery during this young point in my life in which I'm trying to learn the business was made entirely on my own. I was also given the opportunity when I was sent to live in West Palm and to run the West Palm Beaches Auditorium every Monday night to run occasional spot shows off the local television station signal where the championship wrestling from Florida wrestling show was seen each week. Most of these spot shows were run in National Guard armies that were very prevalent across the state of Florida in cities like Fort Pierce, Belle Glade, and Fort Lauderdale, where I was running them. I was responsible for setting up and running the entire event for those. These armies were usually very small, with limited seats for fans, sometimes with even no bleachers. They rarely had showers, and on occasion only one dressing room for everybody to dress in. The best thing these armies had going for them was cheap rental rates. I had great success running these armies and was getting noticed by Eddie Graham and others in the office in Tampa for the houses I was producing, but I was very limited in creating large crowds because of the armory's size and, the, and their poor seating arrangements. As my promotional skills developed, these buildings were just too small, and I wanted badly to produce huge numbers for the spot shows I promoted. It forced me to find a better way than what previous promoters in Florida had discovered, to think outside the box. It was also going to benefit me most years later when I created Southeastern Wrestling. You know, thinking outside the box was just that. I had to start by analyzing 
what was usually the largest building in every small town if they didn't have their own city building that could be rented. High school gymnasiums was always the answer. But most high school gyms could not be rented because schools were very leery of damage to their gyms. They distrusted a lot of times those that wanted to rent their buildings and or either denied them completely because their school boards wouldn't even consider renting their gymnasium. So I could have walked away from the entire concept early on, but something in my mind just kept saying to me, you're going to need this someday, Ron. You're going to need this type of promotion with the high schools to be able to make it happen. So what I did is, as I said earlier, I'd broken all the Florida spot show, spot show records, basically, with about around a $4,000 gross with only National Guard armies to run in. So after 14 months after arriving in West Palm, Eddie calls me up and, and he says, uh, Ron, would you be interested in running a little bigger town than what you've normally been, we've been letting you run? And I said, absolutely. Where you want me to go, Eddie? He said, how about Vero Beach, Florida? Uh, I don't know why I picked Vero Beach, but it was off of the West Palm Beach television. It's where it got, they got their signal from. And uh, so this was my point. This was my opportunity, I felt, uh, to get into a high school gym. And I was determined to do this, that, to get into a high school gym in Vero Beach, Florida, and see just what I could draw in a spot show. I finally set up a meeting with the school board, basketball and football coaches, and any other entity that had a say in improving my being able to rent the gym. I showed up in a nice suit to Vero Beach School Board meeting to discuss this most unusual potential use of their gym. Luckily, I was a babyface and highly recognizable to most of the board. Also, luckily for me, Eddie Graham's continual efforts to support high school sports throughout the state and his Florida Boys Ranch donations, historic in their amounts, were also well known by those who attended this meeting. Everything was discussed at this meeting, from who would be responsible for the insurances to who would pay the school. Ultimately, I was granted to use the Vero Beach High School gym for the first time from a private entity in that city. No one had ever been in the gym before, and I talked them into letting wrestling come in their gym. I had managed to secure their promotional help, their paying for the police security, their covering the gym floor so the ringside seats could be sold, and we were to provide the insurance for the event, give the high school 20% of the gross gate, and pay all other expenses, including the wrestlers. It was the first Florida wrestling event of its kind ever done in the state of Florida. How do you go about setting up the insurance, Ron? Well, you know, obviously, they have insurance. Uh, they have basic insurance. You can't operate in any building. You couldn't run in your army in, in Tampa. You couldn't run the Miami Beach Convention Center, uh, West Palms Auditorium, uh, Jacksonville's Coliseum. The, there's insurance required that you have uh, liability insurance in case somebody gets hurt. Insurances that covers the building. Uh, all of that is already in place. So it's pretty simple. You've got the policy. You just uh, add an addendum and you add Vero Beach to that policy. And, uh, you know, it was pretty darn inexpensive. Once they, once the numbers were shaken out, Eddie thought that it was going to cost a lot. Once he found out, it was like a, it's going to cost $75 
for the insurance. And, uh, and I said, uh, Eddie, I, I believe we have a, a shot at, uh, at doing a record crowd for you, a record spot show. So uh, he was all for it, and it was pretty simple to do. So on July 15, 1972, we drew over 10,000 gross in a Florida spot show for the first time ever in the history of Florida wrestling. That gross was the third largest gross of the entire week, and not just you know, and uh, you got to think in the entire week, you're running Miami and Tampa and West Palm and Jacksonville and Tallahassee and Fort Lauderdale, all of these big cities. And the third largest gross for the entire week was a spot show that I ran in Vero Beach. Uh, Eddie, my father and every wrestler on the card that night was just truly amazed at the crowd. The building was packed from wall to wall, uh, bleachers both sides, the floor, all the ringside sold out, maybe another 400 people standing behind those ringsiders on the floor that was covered. So uh, more important to me than the wrestlers and Eddie and my father's reaction to it was the school officials. And they were totally blown away by that $2,000 I put in the hands of their principal that night for one night's rental. Uh, not a single thing was damaged in the entire event, and they asked me if I could bring wrestling back just five weeks later. I mean, it was it was a phenomenal success. So it was exactly what I thought it was it could be. Uh, I know we started out this second half. You know, the, we've started out the show with something that uh, this this second half here that something that maybe doesn't seem like it's related to southeastern wrestling, but that couldn't be further from the truth. This high school cooperative effort that I proved works in Vero Beach, Florida, was exactly where I was going to start to move with Southeastern Wrestling, immediately following, analyzing those Arbitron and Nielsen TV rating books in about the middle of August of 1975. I looked at those books. I thought about the schools out there and how they needed the money. I thought about how well this this show in Vero Beach, and we did it three more times before I left there, by the way, and never drew less than $10,000. Uh, and how well it worked in Florida, and I knew it could be even more successful in states like Kentucky and Tennessee, where schools were in even greater need of money. They needed money for everything. Uh, so, And I also thought from those rating books, that any small city more than 40 miles outside Knoxville was now ready for Southeastern Wrestlings, even though it was just 12 weeks after we came on the air at WBIR. It was obvious to me at this point that I was being recognized much more when I was walking around town. Everywhere I went, I started to get recognized so much more since we had been on that 12 weeks on BIR than I had been after being six months on the old station that we moved from. Uh, I'd recently turned babyface to potentially save money on my $100,000 lawsuit, but this new pursuit of high school partners was going to turn out to be much more significant financially than the lawsuit. I picked a small town to begin in, in Jellicoe, Tennessee, on the Tennessee and Kentucky border, just 60 miles north of Knoxville, sits right on Interstate 75. It was a pretty ride over Jellicoe Mountain. That's the big mountain you had to cross to get there on the way there, but an absolutely beautiful return trip on that same afternoon because I came out of that high school with the same thing I did with Vero Beach 
with permission from that high school to operate wrestling in. And uh, it was a glorious day for me, man. It was a, it was a big thing that I really needed to have happen. And I, and I could see that I was going to be able to do it in Knoxville, just like I'd done it at a West Palm. Well, this kind of goes back to that first question I asked at the top of the show, which is if you have to move your building for three weeks, is there a better time than the beginning of September? Because it is back to school and I think crowds would normally be a bit lower. So maybe that is the best time to have a move like that. But what about it? What about back to school time? Well, let's talk about that time of year and, and, and all that's happening in, in that time of year and, and how it affects wrestling companies in the United States. The absolute worst time of the year for wrestling across the country was when school started back. Uh, and that's because families' lifestyles change dramatically when school starts every year in the fall. Uh, the, first, they spend some extra money to get their kids their clothes and all their books and all their materials. Uh, they, everybody's attention changes from what are we going to do on Friday night to have some fun to, uh, you know, well, what are we going to do tomorrow to get ready for school? Uh, it's just a, it's a change that takes place across our entire nation. And it, it's difficult for all types of events, not just wrestling events, uh, concerts, uh, anything that requires people to spend money on. They're less inclined to do it in the fall than any other time of the year. Now, smart promoters, they save their big angles and programs for this time of the year. They save it for the fall. If you didn't uh, and you had used up all your strongest ideas through the summer, then you're destined to pay for it in the fall. Uh, you've got nothing now to, to go with. So it goes back to that losing momentum that we used to talk about on the earlier studcast uh, in the early part of 1975. You build that momentum, all of a sudden you have a couple bad houses, and you're right back to trying to get it back up there again. So you don't want, to, when you come to school getting started in the 1st of September, uh, to get this huge dramatic drop. Uh, I always preferred for my business to be as steady as possible throughout the entire year. Have no bad seasons. And that's really difficult. If you plan for it in the fall, sometimes you can make it happen. I learned how to do it. I'm not going to be so lucky in this fall of 1975. Uh, a great summer. I always thought, felt like that falls apart in the, in the fall is not the way you want to see your business go. I'd planned for this fall of 75. By turning myself babyface at the end of the summer, perfect. I had some great talent on the way, perfect. I had some great heels in the crew, perfect. And I become a babyface by adding myself to the babyfaces. I, I felt I could do okay, even with the recent notice from Jimmy Golden that he was leaving. Some, something, however, was about to happen that I, that I had no control over that I could have never planned for. Uh, plus, I was not aware when I bought Knoxville that I would be booted out of Chilhowee Park every year for three weeks in September because the park became the home of the annual fair that visited almost every city in America. And Knoxville's three weeks happened to be the first three weeks in September. So the big problem with this change of venue every fall was that the city had horrible alternatives to the park. It wasn't bad enough that you had to get out of your normal place, but you couldn't go to a nicer place. Uh, I wasn't ready for the Coliseum. Uh, and I was forced into an old ancient minor league baseball park with very poor parking, falling down bleachers and holes in the roof above the bleachers that 
that were still uh, they were still standing. Some of the bleachers weren't even standing anymore. Uh, it was a horrible facility. I had no choice but to go to Bill Meyer Baseball Stadium in which the minor league played there. Uh, fans didn't like going there. They had been accustomed every September, uh, as long as John Kazan had been there, about having to move out of Chihuahua Park and go into this same baseball stadium. Uh, so I knew that when I researched the numbers from the, the local minor league baseball team and saw the crowds they drew, I knew we were in trouble. I, I said, geez, how are we going to do this? How are we going to get them over there? So the only other building or stadium as an option was the Coliseum. And I knew that we weren't ready for the Coliseum. We could not draw in the Coliseum because we would have had to uh, compete with the fair that's in town there on the three Friday nights we're going to have to run in the Coliseum. Uh, and, you know, it's hard to compete with the fair. It's a big event in most cities. And sometimes the smaller the cities, the more important the event the fair is. So, you know, it's it's hard to buck the fair. So uh, it was a difficult decision for me to, uh, to uh, you know, and there would come a time in the next two years that I'm going to be able to move to the Coliseum and I'm going to stay there all year long and I'm going to buck the fair. I'm going to blow the fair away sometimes. But uh, that's going to take me a while to develop that kind of following. So we had only two more Chilhowee Park nights, August 22nd, we just talked about in the program here, and August 29th, next, the following Friday night, uh, before we have to move to Bill Meyer Stadium in downtown Knoxville. Is the weather okay in September to do an outdoor show? Yes, weather's fine. Now, it's a baseball stadium. It's outside. It even has a covering over the fans, which is more than the amphitheater had. The amphitheater couldn't cover the general mission crowd nor the ringside crowd. So in that respect, it's better. But it's the fact that you're moving, uh, and it's the fact that you're moving to downtown uh, in a place that has no parking and the facilities are terrible, uh, it's just, it was, a, it was just a real nightmare for me. And, uh, I don't know if I'd have changed my mind about buying Knoxville. If I'd have been aware that every September, one of the worst times of the year, three weeks, you're going to have to spend in a minor league baseball stadium. Uh, if I'd have changed my mind, probably not. I would have still taken the, taken a shot at it. And I felt good at this point. Uh, I've still got another show outside, uh, I'm, I'm, I've turned myself babyface. Uh, we've got a great uh, tournament coming up. Uh, I'm thinking that hey, we'll be all right. We're gonna, we're gonna be all right. So, uh, you know, in the last couple of minutes here, I want to change to change directions again a little bit. Uh, you know, I've been traveling, and now I kind of quit traveling. I hadn't been on the road uh, in Memphis. I'd pulled myself away from Memphis and Louisville. Uh, I had had no St. Louis shots uh, in 1975. Uh, I was really uh, staying at home pretty much, uh, basically staying at home. And uh, and Bill Watts calls me up out of nowhere, and he says, Ron, I'd, I'd like to have you come and work two shows in Lake August for me, one in West Palm on a Monday and then Miami on a Wednesday. And, you know, let, uh, Bill and I had a tremendous relationship, and I really respected and admired Bill. And, and I said, absolutely, I'll, I'll do whatever I can to help you. I felt like he wouldn't have asked me if he didn't need help. Uh, I, but I had no idea that he really did need help. Uh, I was going to face a foe I'd never wrestled before, and, and 
uh, in, uh, in, in West Palm Beach, and I didn't know who I was wrestling. It's not common for wrestlers to check and say, well, who am I going to wrestle? If uh, you want a shot, you go take the shot. So I find out when I get there on Monday night, August the 25th in West Palm Beach, that uh, I'm going to face somebody that's not only a terror to fans, but he's a terror to wrestling wrestlers themselves worldwide. I was wrestling Abdullah the Butcher as the main event. And uh, as soon as I arrived at the beautiful auditorium, uh, I knew it was going to be a, a bloody night. <laughs> I mean, everybody that stepped in the ring with Abby knew that. I mean, I was very surprised, though, that the one thing that really, really shocked me, Brian, was the crowd. The crowd was just uh, absolutely dismal. Uh, and uh, and But the, I was pleased. I was still over there with what small crowd was there. They were really into me. And uh, even Abby, Abby complimented me after the match. You know, he said, wow, we had the best match of the night. He goes, these people know you somehow. And I said, yeah, <laughs> I lived in this city and uh, I wrestled in it every Monday night for three years. Said, yeah, I was a, I was a pretty good card here. So, uh, uh, you know, everyone who stepped in the ring with Abby, like I said, uh, they knew that they were going to get some blood, and obviously there was some bleeding by both of us in that match. And uh, the only thing that surprised me, like I said, was the size of the crowd. Two nights later in Miami, I face off against another opponent I'd never worked with, Larry Henning, and uh, and it uh, it's the same crowd. It kind of as what was in West Palm. Uh, it was small. I had never seen a Miami crowd that small. Uh, so Henning and I had a great match. And it made me, I really loved working with Larry Henning. And uh, it made me want to invite him north to Tennessee. But, you know, that was strictly taboo. <laughs> you know, being owner of a company, you don't go in and work for somebody else and then try to steal one of their boys. So, you know, but I really liked Henning, and I, I would—I was thinking, I put that name in the back of my mind, is here's somebody I would sure like to get my hands on someday. Uh, so, again, it was a very small crowd compared to the ones that we were drawing in Miami, certainly back in 1974, when Dusty was on fire. I mean, that thing was cranked all the time. And it really made me feel much better about what was happening in Knoxville. After less than a year since I'd been there, I could see growth in Knoxville and I could, and my crowds were, were similar. And, and, and in, in the case of Knoxville, much better, probably more people in Knoxville on that August 22nd crowd than was in either West Palm or Miami. And that to me was a real feather in my hat. How long is the flight down from Knoxville to Tampa? And did you ask Watts why he asked you to do these two shots? Well, what happens is he flew me into West Palm because I was going to be there on Monday. I never went to Tampa, actually. I flew into West Palm. I showed up at the auditorium. He was on that card. Uh, we had a nice long conversation about how things were going. I obviously didn't mention the bill. You know, gosh, what's wrong with the house? You know, but uh, I didn't have to, you know, and I wasn't going to embarrass him. And I thought that probably would have embarrassed him. And then I spent the night in West Palm. And then uh, I rented a car and I drove to Miami. And I worked Miami. I drove back to West Palm and they flew me out of West Palm back into to, uh, Knoxville. So it was a pretty sweet little trip. I was in Florida for three days, basically. Uh, actually took that middle day and, uh, and I went bass fishing on Lake Okeechobee. So there you go. You know, 
I, I made a little vacation out of it. I got away from things and I had myself a little bit of fun. Uh, I got to meet Abby and uh, and Abby I'm going to work with a few more times in my career. I got to work with a guy like Henning and uh, and I got to make myself feel good about my own company that, hey, maybe you're headed in the right direction, kid. Well, that's a good up note to end this week's episode of the Studcast, Ron. And as we do so, we want to remind you on Facebook, like the page Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud. All you have to do is like that page and automatically you are friends with a wrestling legend. Of course, the Tennessee Stud is on Twitter at Ron Fuller Welch. You can follow me on Twitter at Great Brian Last. The Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network is on Twitter at Super Podcasts. And you can hear me on the 605 Super Podcast at 605pod.com or available wherever it is that you find your favorite podcasts. Of course, Super Studcast number 21. We've been talking about it a few times on this week's episode. It has a little bit of everything, including two great guests. Part one with Brutus the Barber Beefcake. Hear him talk to Ron all about his great friendship with Hulk Hogan, how they began their careers in Southeastern, the various places he worked, and of course, how he almost died. The famous parasailing accident, July 4th, 1990. And also, hear the Tennessee stud speak with his second cousin, Roy Lee Welch. Hear all about Roy Lee's perspective of the Knoxville and the Atlanta Wrestling Wars. You got to hear this today. TNstud.com or Patreon.com slash studcast. Ron, where will we be going next week right here on the studcast? Well, we're going to close out the summer of 1975. We're going to put an end to the $100,000 lawsuit, believe it or not. Uh, we're going to finalize that and deal with it in the next uh, studcast. We're going to finish the archaeological experience of my life, <laughs> which is going to be very <laughs> short, obviously. Uh, we're going to receive, and uh, you know, I'm going to receive the worst wrestling injury so far in my career uh, at a very horrible time for it to happen. Uh, as we've just talked about in this program. And we're going to head into the fall of 1975, clearly behind the eight ball. So uh, I'd just like to invite fans to saddle up and ride with me again next week, Brian. Ron Fuller's Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. For the Tennessee Stud Ron Fuller, I'm the great Brian Last. The story continues next week. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. One, two, three. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains. <laughs>